morning. I'm gonna read from Ephesians 6, 1 uh, this morning, and this is what it says. It says, children, if you wanna be wise, <laughs> listen to your parents and do what they tell you, and the Lord will help you. Let's pray. Father God, I just wanna thank you for your word to us this morning. Um, I know that you have given us purpose, and you are a good God. And so, God, you've given us purpose that is good, probably beyond what we understand or can think. And so, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us directly to our spirit, man, this morning. We want to leave here um, different as a result of hearing your word this morning. In your mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. You can be seated. All right. So, in 2012... Um, Daniel Day-Lewis won the Academy Award for Best Actor in his portrayal of President Abraham Lincoln. Anybody see that movie? Yeah. And so the seriousness with which he took the role is legendary. Um, he isolated himself for months and read laboriously through pages of firsthand accounts of interactions with the president so he could mimic exactly his gentle tenor and slightly cracked voice, so he could master his shuffling and his flat-footed step. And then he stayed in character for months all throughout the filming. And so his peers, even today, uh, marvel at his preparation and his unwavering commitment to that role of embodying the president of the United States. And if you've seen him in that role, it's a gift to all those that see it. Um, now, 12 years later, an actor by the name of Brandon Fraser, the actor from such mega hits as Encino Man and The Mummy, also portrayed Abraham Lincoln in a rom-com, a romantic comedy called Bedazzled. Critics were less complimentary of that film, describing it as, quote, weak, pitiful, and persistently unfunny. Now, while Brandon Fraser undoubtedly possesses talent and um, critics were not as convinced by his performance, largely due to the fact, well, first of all, that this was a comedy, and to the fact that he did not embrace that role with the same seriousness as Daniel Day-Lewis, and therefore it was a less transporting performance as he portrayed the 16th president of the United States. So now why tell you that? For this reason. If you're just joining us, we've been in the midst of this series called Don't Waste Your Life, and we've been talking about using and maximizing every moment that God has given us in this life for his glory and for people's good. And you go, well, how do I measure whether or not I'm wasting my life or not? Well, those are the questions we've been asking. And one way to evaluate it is to look at how seriously I take the roles that God has given me. How seriously do I take them? And the reality is all of us are not encompassed by one singular role, right? Um, but God has given many of us multiple roles that you fill, all of us probably. And all of us are a child or part of a family. Many of us are employees. All of us are stewards of resources that uh, we have, health and time and money. And we've talked about some of those things already in this series, be they many or be they few. Um, all of us have these roles that God has given us, and we can evaluate, have I been a success in life or have I wasted my life based on the seriousness with which I commit myself to the roles that I've been given by God. And so today, we continue this series, and we're looking at one specific role that, um, though we're, we're in a variety of different situations in life, there's one role that all of us in this room have filled. And I don't know if we've seriously thought about how to fulfill that role well. And the role is we are all members of a family. And so today our theme is don't waste your family. Now, a natural assumption when I say that, a lot of people, I would think, assume that we're going to talk about parenting, which I love to talk about. Um, I'm a parent of seven myself, along with Deanna, and, you know, which would be a legitimate way to go. Um, there are probably a lot of parents in this room, um, and some of you, you know, have little kids, but I would dare say a larger percentage of us in this room, 100% of us, came from somebody right? It's a, it's a fact. So I want to focus today on our family of origin because no matter how far away that you've moved from them, all of us have been profoundly impacted by our family. So for me, I was looking through some old uh, family photos that our, our daughter Cynthia had just sent us. Um, many of you know she's uh, over in Russia right now, and she did just uh, kind of fixed up in the laptop that's been kind of... Um, uh, the motherboard had been fried for several years and just got it fixed up again, booted it up, and wanted to share some 
some of the pictures that she discovered on it. And so um, she uh, sent us, she's been sending pictures every day of her adventures over there. But I, I remember pulling out this one. We're gonna put up on the screen here in just a second. And uh, I, I looked at it and I was like, I, I, first of all, I didn't recall this moment. I don't remember taking this picture. Turns out Cynthia had snapped the picture with whatever digital camera or device that she had at that time. And I was thinking to myself, which of my kids is this even? Because I have three that look a lot alike. And so I had to ask to make sure because I, you know, I, I, sometimes I just don't know. How many, how many of you can guess which one that is? It's not Bella. <laughs> it is Zion. <laughs> that was one of those unfortunate weeks um, where the kids came home and there was kind of a lice breakout going through the school. And so we had to do that thing where you're combing and picking and oh, one of those fun weekends. Here's another one that Deanna likes to share. Look at this photo. And I want you to look at that. It's the triplets, as we call them. And Deanna has commented on this when she shared it before. Um, and she says, I don't know how it's possible, but they all have my cheeks. Now, anybody have a guess to the, who those are from the left? That is Kella. That's Kella. In the middle. That's me. Yeah, that's me in the middle. On the right. Zion. So. You kind of sort of had some right answers out there, so congratulations. Um, you know, so I, I, it's, it's, we have triplets, that's what we call them. So sometimes we are much more like our parents than we want to admit. And, you know, we're, God made us that way as far as, you know, our, our faces and our DNA and our genetics. And, and so their influence marks us. And it's the same with all of us, for better or for worse. You've been deeply impacted by those people that you grew up with. And if I were to ask you your life story, um, many of your pro profound joys and some of your greatest pains came from your family. Many of you um, have been to counseling, and it probably hasn't been because, you know, you have an annoying neighbor. It's probably been because you're trying to unwind some of the complexities of the emotional experiences you might have had as a kid, right? And so some of us, when we talk about our family of origin, some of you go, well, I don't want to talk about that. You know, I want to get away from that. And some of us that have had great family experiences, right? I, I, that's me. That, I, I love to try and come up with new ways that I can honor my parents because they're fantastic. Dad's sitting there in the back, right? That's great. And, you know, if, if that's your story, then congratulations. That's amazing. But, but for many, you identify with a comedian, George Burns, when he says, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city, <laughs> right? Um, and so you go, I wanna get away from these people, but you're forever bound to your family. And so let me just say this, the ongoing quality of your relationship with God and your success or failure in life is extremely, it is doubly linked to your family. And we're gonna look at a bunch of scriptures this morning. First Peter chapter three says this, husbands, you must, uh, you in turn must treat your wives with tenderness, viewing them uh, as partners who deserve to be honored, partners, for they are co-heirs with you in the divine grace of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. God says, husbands, be understanding of the sensitivities of your wife, if you're not willing, there, there's, a, there's a chance I'm not going to hear from you as well. Your prayers, it says, are going to be hindered. God marks us with that. And some of you go, well, of course, that's a husband and wife. You know, they kind of have to, they live together, but you're talking about my parents and I'm an adult. Uh, well, then let's go over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. The apostle Paul is talking to Timothy about how to instruct his church about how people are to treat their aging parents. And so he says, if they, he's talking about widows here, if they have children or grandchildren at home, then it is only proper to let them provide for the ones who raised them when they were children. For kindness begins at home and it pleases God. He's talking about adults and their aging parents. And Paul defines godliness as caring for your aging parents. I wonder if we've ever defined godliness that way or thought about it that way before. And then he goes on and says this, for if a believer fails to provide for their own relatives when they are in need, they have compromised their convictions of faith and need to be corrected for they're living worse than the unbelievers. I don't even know fully what that means, but it sounds terrible. 
right? And so regardless, it's, it's pretty clear that God inextricably links faith in him and grace shown to your biological family. That he says, if you don't care for these people, I wonder if you even really know me. And, and, and so we've, we've got to get this right. This is a role that God takes very seriously. Um, forever you are bound to these people, right, blood, and God will evaluate your life based on your treatment of them. And yet some of you go, why would he do that, Sean? <laughs> why would he do that? My family are not the people that I would naturally hang out with. Um, these people, the, the people that I've selected to, to be around are nothing like them. So why would God bind me up with these people um, every holiday season? Well, let me give you just two overarching statements um, that I want to put over the message today. And the first one is this. If you're taking notes, it's on your bulletins. This is the, one of the blanks. One of them is that God is sovereign over your family. This, is, I, this idea, we'll find it in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul launches into a prayer. And uh, at the very outset, this is what he says. I kneel humbly in awe before the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And this is what he says, the perfect Father of every family in heaven and on earth. He says family is God's idea, and it's a great idea. The original design of a family was an amazing idea. When God built humanity, he built a man, he built a woman, he came up with an idea called sex, and that's fantastic, right? And he made that the means by which we create other people, and so that's awesome. And then he said, we're going to create these nuclear families where an older man and an older woman model wisdom for those uh, in, from their lives to the younger generation. And so that's a great idea. And so he, his first command to them in Genesis 1 is what? Be fruitful and multiply. What a great idea. And then, then when, when God planted them in the garden, it keeps on going in chapter 2. And he says, he looked at the man and he said, cultivate, cultivate. And so he's, and that word cultivate means what? What does cultivate mean? It means you take raw materials and you situate them in a way so that life can flourish, right? It can maximally flourish. You cultivate it. That's what God was doing in Genesis 1 and 2, right? He's building the structures of the earth uh, so that life could flourish. And so then he looks at Adam and he looks at Eve and he says, you do the same, Cultivate. Look at the life that I've given you influence over and create structures of time and energy and resources so that your life can flourish. And that's what good parents do, right? You, they create a home uh, where, where, you, where you as a child can flourish under God. You can see your gifts and you can, you can, they can fan them into flame. Mom and dad can help you with that and you can serve the common good. And so that's a good family. The family was a great idea, but it got messed up from the beginning, right? If we keep reading in Genesis, God designed, God's design for family was cultivation, but sin distorted it into chaos. And so for Eve, rather than being a co-heir, with Adam, she began to tempt him to go towards a self-absorbed expression, right? Adam, rather than protecting his family, as was his call from God, had a passivity, and he watched his wife go down a trail that she was never meant to go down. And so you, you see that man where they, they once had a vulnerability in their family, um, it was instantly replaced with shame, it was replaced with blame. And so you see by the time that they have their first children, what happens? One son murders the other. And, and so it's fascinating. I've, I've had, as I've had conversations with people um, you know, throughout the years when they talk about the pain of their childhood, oftentimes the way people talk about it is as an isolating thing. And so, you know, you don't understand the pain that's come from my family or, you know, you don't know what my family is like. And they see the pain that they've experienced in their family as something that isolates them from the rest of humanity. But let me tell you something, the very first nuclear family ever on this planet of four people, one murdered the other. And, and, and families have been broken from the jump, so the brokenness of your family does not isolate you. It rather connects you to the whole human story. Not every family gets joy, but almost every family gets pain. And I'm not saying that to minimize the pain that you've been through. I'm saying that to maximize how broken the world is. 
And so if you've read the Old Testament, I mean, look at it. Um, you, you have family members murdering one another. You have them swindling one another in business, sexually harming one another. All throughout the Old Testament, you see all kinds of brokenness that's happening in the family. It's a horrible, distorted thing. And so many of you go, that's my experience. And, and my family didn't cultivate me. It was chaos. That's where I came from. So I've got to get out of there. And, and, and yet, as the Bible continues, and you see the story of, of Adam and Eve, they have another son, Seth. And Seth calls on the name of the Lord. And he raised his son, Enosh, um, to fear the God. And then on through Noah, a godly grace gets sown back into the family story. And then when God gets to Abraham, he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And through you, every family on the earth is going to be blessed. It's through you. Family was meant for cultivation, but it was broken into chaos. But God redeems the family unit as a means of redemption. And so grace is going to start in a little family, and it's going to become a wave that crashes into every family. That's a story of redemption. And so some of you have watched your families come to know and embrace the grace of God through Jesus and the, the descendant of Abraham. Others of you, maybe you're the only one in your family um, who the grace of God has touched down on. Uh, but God has not given up on family and he wants to use you and your family. And so God is sovereign over family. I want us to, that's one of our overarching ideas today. God is sovereign over family, and not just the institution, but your particular family. Back to Ephesians 3.14, let's read that again. He says, I kneel humbly in awe before the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the perfect Father of every family. The perfect Father of every family in heaven and on the earth. And what he means by that, God is the source of every family. So your particular family, it's not an accident. It's, it's not just that God ordained the institution and somehow, and you ended up with the crazies. That's not what happened. You know, it's that God ordained your family. So yeah, maybe your mom's roommate in college introduced to your, you know, to the, to your dad at a bar and that's how they met, but it was God that arranged the meeting. And, and so you are in your particular family on purpose. And some of you go, well, why did he do that? <laughs> why put me with these people? Well, let me tell you one of the implications of understanding that God is sovereign over your family. If you just look at Paul's prayer, it's right after that verse we just read, the one we're reading where it says he's a perfect father of every family in heaven on earth. And then listen to this prayer. This is a prayer right here. This is what he says. And I pray that he would unveil within you the unlimited riches of his glory and favor with, until supernatural strength floods your innermost being with his divine might and explosive power. And then by constantly using your faith, the life of Christ will be released deep inside of you and the resting place of his love will become the very source and the root of your life. And then you will be empowered to discover what every Holy One experiences, the great magnitude of the astonishing love of Christ in all of its dimensions. How deeply intimate and far reaching is his love. How enduring and inclusive it is. Endless love beyond measurement that transcends our understanding. This extravagant love pours into you until you are filled to overflowing with the fullness of God. So the question is, why are you starting here, Sean? <laughs> For this reason. What the word of God is trying to tell us is this is the family. This is the reality that the, the God whose love cannot be measured, that the one who you can't get your arms around, the height, the breadth of it, and the God whose love will come crashing into your life and puts you, he's the one that puts you in your family. And so he, he rules over your life. He put you there. And when you realize that the God who loves you that much put you there, it instantly liberates you from sin justifying victimhood, right? Um, and it gives you the compassion to love the people in your family, whether they've filled their roles well or not. 
And so you see it in Joseph. Just let's, let's give a picture from scripture, right? You see it in Joseph in the Old Testament. Young Joseph had a bunch of older brothers that didn't like him. There was some jealousy in there, right? And so uh, which happens when your dad has like four wives at once, by the way, that creates some complexity, right? And so they hated little Joe. And so he showed up to check on them while they were shepherding. And what did they do? They grabbed Joseph and they threw him in an empty pit. And then he had to sit down there in that pit and listen while his brothers debate whether or not they're going to murder him. Okay, then if you keep reading in Genesis, it says that they sat down to eat. They were casual enough about talking about how little his life meant that they were eating sandwiches as they're talking about whether they're gonna let him live. While he's down there and scared to death, as a kid, the brothers see a caravan go by and they say, why don't we just sell him? And so they sell their brother into slavery. You think that's gonna cause some psychological problems? Yeah, yeah so he becomes a slave. He's, he's wrongly accused of a crime. He gets put in prison. He gets left in prison for a very long time. And finally, by the grace of God, he gets out and he gets a job in the household of Pharaoh in Egypt. And so he begins to rise in Egypt. But even as he's approaching his 40s, I love this. He's, he's, he's a, he has a son and he names his firstborn Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all of my hardship and my father's house. That's what his son's firstborn name means. So do you think he's still dealing with some unresolved issues, even in his 40s? He named his son, forget you, family. That's what he named his son, Manasseh. Clearly, he was still working through some things. And you see into his 30s and 40s, there's a pain that's lodged in his heart that some of you know really well. That there's a damage that can be done to you that you don't reconcile sometimes. It's hard to reconcile way into your adult life. But then what happens? He, he, he gets dreams of how to take care of Egypt in the midst of a famine. He gets to be a blessing to a nation, right? When his family's in a region that begins to starve. And so while he's ruling over Egypt, his family comes. And when he intersects with his brothers, he sees with his eyes that the grace of God has been working on them and breaking their hearts and God is changing them. And what happens in that moment? Joseph looks at his brothers, his family who have hurt him, who have caused lots of pain, lots of deep-rooted pain. And as they realize, the brothers, that this is Joseph, whom we sold into slavery, who we, we, ridiculed, we threw in a pit when he was a kid, they break down, they break down in shame, they break down in terror, and they weep in his presence. And this is what he says to them in Genesis 45. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all of the land of Egypt. Do you see what's happening there? As he gets older, he realizes, yes, my family hurt me. And I, I, I don't have to call it anything else than that. They hurt me. They really hurt me. But they don't ultimately control my story. They don't. God does. And God is using my story to weave grace into this world and to be a voice of grace and a conduit of grace even back into the family that hurt me so badly. And my question to all of us this morning is are you willing to be a conduit of grace to your family? You will be when you realize it's God who reigns over your story and not them. You will be. It will give you the compassion to see them not as the rulers of the story who hurt you, but as human beings made in his image, Amen. broken because of sin, desperately in need of grace. Maybe you come from a divorced or a broken home and there's bitterness that can get in your heart about that. Uh, maybe it's your mom or your dad. And a lot of times we let it fester, don't we? <laughs> Into high school and the college years. 
and that kind of fuels the fire, and that's sort of where we live then, and, and, and then there's, there's something really empower, some, empowering sometimes about that anger, until you find out maybe one day that your mom and dad are real people with real struggles, just like you. <laughs> I heard a pastor sharing um, this story, his name is Ben, about finding and reading his dad's journal. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong to read your father's journal. I'm just telling the story, okay? (laughs) But this pastor's name was Ben. And he saw in his dad's journal that he came upon that his father wasn't saying um, anything harsh about him in the journal, even though Ben had kind of been treated badly by him growing up. Um, But his dad, he realized, had a very different spiritual upbringing than he did himself. He didn't have anywhere near uh, the Christian love and experience and the resources that Ben did as, as a kid and growing up. So in fact, Ben was the closest believer in his father's proximity on a regular basis. And so he found out that his father felt judged by him as he was reading through the pages of this journal. And as he was wrestling, uh, his father was wrestling with the shame that he felt about not living up to the expectations of his son. So Ben had never thought about that before, the influence that he brought, you know, brings into the room. But then he realized in that moment, even though that there was some brokenness you know, in his family, that God sent people to him to bring him sweetly to Jesus, right? His, um, he gave him his mom who had this robust faith that led all of him and his, and his siblings uh, to the love of God. And now Ben is a pastor. And so in that moment, Reading the journal, he saw his dad not as this kind of figure that was looming you know, over his story like a dark cloud, but as a man who didn't get to know God like he did as a kid. And, 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 and yeah, he made some bad choices. And yeah, Ben's life was affected by some of those choices. But can the grace of God extend through Ben to him? And, and as... As Ben saw God ruling over his own story, he saw his, he began to see his dad as someone who potentially could be a recipient of compassion. God is sovereign over your family. And when you realize that, you'll begin to understand that your spiritual family can give you the resources to bless your biological one. And so Jesus did it, right? Jesus did it. He began his earthly ministry. Do you remember this? It all kicks off and he says, you know, I am the son of God. And, and he starts telling people that and he starts doing miracles and he gets this big crowd. And do you remember what happens right when the crowds are beginning to blow up? Who shows up? It's his family. They're in the back and they come to get him. And they were saying, he is out of his mind. He's out of his mind. They weren't, they, they weren't just thinking it. They showed up at the service, they're in the back row and they're going, I'm so sorry, you know, when his blood sugar gets low, he thinks he's deity. Jesus, you get down from there. And you're Jesus going, mom, I just, okay, okay, stop. Right? You see, later in his ministry, his brothers mock him. They said, why don't you go to Jerusalem? That's where all the heroes go. And the reason they're saying that, they didn't believe his claims to be Messiah. So they they went from from thinking he was crazy and a fool to making fun of him. And yet, when Paul passes along to us that which is of the first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was raised from the dead, this is what he said. He visited his disciples, and then it says he visited James. Who's James? James. His brother. He visited his brother, the one who had mocked him, one of his brothers, the one who had ridiculed him. Jesus made a personal visit to James. Why? Was it to rub it in his face like, hey, who's the son of God now, bro? (laughs) No. In fact, I, I think it was to offer him grace because we have a book written by James in our Bible talking about how grace can change a human life. Why? Because it happened to him. It happened to him through his brother that God rescues us and makes us conduits of his grace. And the resources of your godly family can help you love your biological one. There's another story in Ephesians, Ephesians uh, 1 through 3. If you, if, you, if you read all of it, um, there's only one command. It's the word remember. 
And um, all of it is about how much God loves you and, and uh, how when you were dead, you know, he made you alive. And, and when you were lost, he brought you in. And when you were abandoned, he made you part of his family. And so it's all about this inexhaustible love and grace of God through his son, Jesus. And then he prays this prayer. I just pray that you, God, would strengthen us, that you would understand how, that they would understand how vast the love of God is, right? And then we pivot into the back half of the book. And then it says, I plead with you to walk holy in a way that is suitable to your high rank given to you in your divine calling. And then you get 41 commands, you know, embrace the love of your spiritual family, uh, step out and love the world, walk around in love. And the rest of Ephesians is built around the word walk, which shows up five different times, how to walk with God. And we're not going to get into all five, but the last one is wisdom. It says, be very careful how you live. Not being like those with no understanding, but live honorably with true wisdom, for we are living in evil times. Take full advantage of every day as you spend your life for his purposes. In other words, don't waste those opportunities. Walking in wisdom, it says, as you read through the book of Ephesians, is to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it starts to tell us when walking in the Spirit, this is what it looks like. It looks like addressing one another in hymns and spiritual songs and making melody to the Lord and giving thanks always to your God and Father and submitting to one another out of reverence to Jesus, children to their parents. It starts talking about the family unit. And so it says, when you know God and when you are filled with the Spirit of God, God gives you a role to fill so God is sovereign over my family, first of all. And here's the other overarching idea I want to put over today. And now I am a steward of a role in my family. I'm a steward of a role in my family. You have the inexhaustible love of God. Chapters one through three. Walk with wisdom, making the most of your time. Don't waste it. Don't waste this opportunity you have. His very spirit fills you. Therefore, it says, children, if you want to be wise, listen to your parents and do what they tell you, and the Lord will help you. And so my call to us today is, will you take that up when you see that God is sovereign over your family? Will you embrace the stewardship that God has given you? He looked at you and he said, while you're alive, I want you to love those people. While you're alive, I'm giving you these people. I know your grandpa is difficult. I made him. I made him. I totally get what's going on there. Can you just love him? I know your mom's like that. I'm working on her. But will you love her? I'm not asking you to critique her role. I'm asking you to fill yours. And so to give us the sentence to come around, like we've been doing in this series, I would say the big idea for today is don't waste your family by taking up your role and cultivating a culture of honor in which all in the family can flourish under God. Take up your role in cultivating a culture of honor in which all the family can flourish under God. And so children, <laughs> there's ways that we can do that, right? It says, children, listen to your parents and do what they tell you to do. So obey them. And that word children there is not a word about age. The word literally means to come from parents, okay? So it doesn't matter how old you are. And it says, obey them. And it says, the Lord will help you. He'll give you strength to do it. And so obey your parents as a function of you obeying God. It's woven together forever. And then he quotes the Old Testament, honor your father and mother, which was the first of the 10 commandments with a promise attached. You will prosper and live a long, full life if you honor your parents. That's not a threat where he says, honor your parents or else you're gonna be struck by lightning. That's not it. He said that in the Old Testament to say that the family is a structure upon which society stands. And so when you honor your parents, you preserve the structure and you'll live long in your land. And we're seeing that. The United States Department of Health and Human Services says that the poverty rate among children, listen to this, the poverty rate among children in fatherless homes is 47%. 47%. It's 10% in two-parent homes. That when the family unit breaks, society breaks. 
I won't go into all the staggering amounts of research which correlates everything from drug use to early sexual debuts to suicide rates to lower education achievements based on the breakdown of the family. We need strong families so we can dwell long in this land is what scripture says. And so we need to take our roles in the family very seriously, not as the savior of your family. We've got somebody who does that. You're not that, but as a steward of your role in the family. So as a child, let's get into some implications before we close here. How can, how can you take up your role as a child of your parents and your family? How can you do that? Well, scripture gives us two words in the scriptures that we've read so far, obey and honor. So that word obey combines two words in the original language, listen and under. So children can cultivate a culture of honoring your family, first of all, by listening attentively, Listening, and that counts for older parents too, okay? So if you have an inclination when you talk to your parents to go, I know, I know, I know. Mom, I know, I know, I'm gonna do that. Mom, I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> that says more about your impatience than it does about their nagging. <laughs> that we can honor our parents, this role that God created, and we can fill our role as uh, children by listening to them attentively. Come into your parents' circle as a learner. Come as a learner. I wish I had done this more with my mom. She passed away a few years ago now. And uh, as we we're going through some of her belongings, we found some of her prayer journaling. Um, her and dad have always prayed over myself and Deanna and all of our kids by name. And, you know, even in some difficult moments in, in mom's life, she would still write out prayers for us and she would, she would journal them. She would write them out. And that challenges me. She's showing us all how it's done. And I wish I would have come to her earlier as a learner spiritually. I could have learned more. So listen attentively to your parents. They still have some things to teach you, even in their old age. Maybe even especially in their old age. And then the other word from obey is under. And so I would say to this, act responsibly. Put yourself in a position where you're under when you're around your parents to respond to them. Be inclined in your heart to do what they say. Jesus did that as an adult with Mary, right? He's the son of God. <laughs> do you remember when his family, his ministry started? He was at the wedding that ran out of wine. Uh, so, you know, he, he could have said, you know, that's their problem. But his mom comes up to him and says, hey, Jesus, <laughs> They're out of wine, and so I told them that you knew something about that. <laughs> you know, and what did Jesus say? Woman, it's not my time. No, there's a rollout plan. My father and I have it all worked out. Did, did he tell his mom, mom, stop being crazy. I'm an adult. No, he was like, give me some water. Wine. <laughs> right? And then he's like, give it to him, boys, and let's get out of here, right? <laughs> and he did it, thereby justifying wine drinking to generations of college kids and so forth. But anyways, <laughs> as a child in your family, you can cultivate honor. And so how? By being responsive in your heart to your parents. By being responsive in your heart. I used to tell this to college students. I would see um, kids go away to Bible college and seminary and go off to these uh, leadership schools overseas and they'd come back and they'd get radically lit on fire. And then they would come uh, to me or come back to the church and they'd come back disturbed. They're like, man, in college, I suddenly understood what God was about and, and what Jesus was about. And I go home and my family is not doing any of this. And so I'm trying to tell my parents how to live right. And they're being resistant to it and I don't get what their problem is. And I'm like, you know, that stinks, but you walked away from their house for a hot minute, and now you're back, and you start telling them how to run things? I said, that doesn't honor them, so stop the sermons. And they're like, well, I know, but I have so much inside of me. Don't preach to your parents. So preaching up uh, it usually doesn't go well. So let, let me tell you about something, if, you, if you're a student. When you go home over the holidays, do the dishes without being asked, you know, and, and then shovel the snow off the driveway and the sidewalk. And I promise you, your atheist parents are going to believe that there is a God in heaven. <laughs> Some of you go, my, but my, Sean, my family doesn't deserve it. Of course they don't, but you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for him. 
The Lord has given you resources to bless them and you can do it, right? You can do it. So if Jesus Christ, while he's dying for the sins of the world, he's stripped naked and he's beaten on a cross, can, as one of his last acts, look down and make sure his mother is taken care of by his disciples, you can call your mom. <laughs> you're, you're not that busy. So listen attentively to them and respond to them and stay connected to your aging parents. And the next one, honor them. Speak graciously to them. That's part of speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Speak graciously to your parents. Don't underestimate their needs to see themselves replicated in you. And so you can speak kindly to them and not just speak graciously, but speak gratefully to them. A way to honor them is to thank them for what they've done in their life. And you may go, I don't know what to do with that. You know, maybe, maybe you and your grandfather don't have a lot of touch points in life and you don't really know how to talk to each other. Uh, but he served in World War II. And so if you go to his house, you know, you, you've never really talked with him about it. But if you go to his house, there's pictures and books and there's all this paraphernalia all around the house. And, and you walk around the house to so start reading about World War II and learning about it. Why? Because you want to celebrate all you can about his life. And so then sit at the kitchen table and show him, I don't know, show him Google Earth, open it up, open it up to where, you know, he used to fly bombers in that area and, you know, watch him light up and he'll start showing you how he flew over and under and around the hills and the airstrips to, to, that are probably still there and he'll start telling stories and as he starts telling stories, he'll, he'll probably light up and as he's telling stories, his children will gather around, his grandchildren will start gathering around because he's never talked like that before. And, and by being grateful for what he did in World War II and being gracious to him, you can open a door for connection that you didn't have before, when before maybe all that you focused on was the things that you disagreed on. And so the reality is you can thank your parents. And even if it's just, you know, even if you would say, well, I don't have anything to thank them for, the root of the word parent means to come into existence, right? Remember that? And so you can thank them for that. Um, Steve Jobs' parents gave him up when he was young, and he went on a search to find his biological mother, and the biographer that wrote his story, his, his life story, was asking him why, and he said, I wanted to thank her for not aborting me. That's all. And, and he said, because I'm assuming she was under this great duress as a young woman, and I wanted to thank her. And so maybe for you, that's as far as you can get, but that's a good start. That's a good start. If you're in high school or junior high, um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture put out a report that uh, to raise a child from zero to 18 costs a quarter of a million dollars. So at lunch today, just thank your parents for dropping a quarter mil on you. <laughs> You've probably never dropped that amount of money on anybody. And parents, don't remind them of that. Just, you'll kill the moment. Just let them do it. <laughs> so for parents, let's go real quick here and we'll, we'll end. It says, fathers, don't exasperate your children, but raise them up uh, with loving discipline um, and counsel that brings the revelation of our Lord. So let me talk about how we can be good parents. Three things really quick. Parents can cultivate a culture of honor. One, by not being overbearing. How do you provoke a child for anger? You become overbearing, harsh demands, constant nagging, pressure to achieve, nitpicking their decisions. It's interesting. Holly uh, Schifrin, who's a psychologist at the University of Mary Washington, she put out a report in the Journal of uh, Child and Family Services that says the overwhelming evidence has shown that older, uh, overly involved Grown-up parents and adult children's lives do more harm than good. Every person has three basic needs in order to be happy, um, to feel autonomous, to be competent, and to be connected to others. And helicopter parenting um, decreases a child's ability to do all three, to feel autonomous, to feel competent, and to feel connected. And so that incompetence, we've seen, it leads to depression. And so if you're an adult and have adult kids or, or if you're just a parent, it's time to become less commanding and more counselor, especially um, as a, of adult parents. So read the book of Proverbs. The dad in the book of Proverbs does not demand and command. Um, and the child he's talking to is probably around the age of 13. And so as your child grows up, the text says, 
dedicate your children to God and point them in the way that they should go. And the values that they've learned from you will be with them for life. That means you're raising them to be peers, right? And you become less of a commander and more of an advisor as they grow. So uh, we avoid being overbearing, but number two, we also avoid disappearing. So one of, one of the most painful things that a parent can do with their child is to step out of their lives altogether. McGill University in Canada published their findings that growing up without fathers alters the structure of the brain of children and makes them more aggressive and angry. There's an old African proverb about that that says a child that is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. You can frustrate and provoke your children to anger by being overbearing or by disappearing. Both of those can be equally painful. Um, I heard a story that challenged me as a father the other day. Um, this dad walked into the room and, of his five, and his five-year-old kid was just kind of going bananas, just kind of going crazy like kids can do sometimes, right? And he said, um, finally, in one moment, I just looked at her and I said to her, what's the matter with you? Why are you acting like this? And in a moment of frustration, you know what she said back to him, this little five-year-old girl, I don't have anyone to play with. And if you would just put your phone down and played with me, maybe I wouldn't act like this. (laughs) And he said part of him was like, insubordinate. (laughs) He wanted to punish her for that, but it was kind of hard to do so when he was holding the phone in his hand. She kind of has a point. And he said he realized in his home a common MO for him and his wife was to be on their phones in the kitchen while the kids are out doing something else in the living room. And so that kind of broke at his heart and it broke his mindset to where I don't want my kids' childhood memories to be dad was too busy for them because he was on his phone checking his Instagram. So when I get home, the phone goes away and I want their memories to be of a dad who is on the floor with them and I want them to know that their dad loves and I want it to be easy for them to believe that their sovereign father in heaven loves them because they saw it in their earthly father. And so for me, I don't want to disappear on them into the portal of my screen. And so some of us, the most godly thing that we'll do is to start putting these things down that we keep in our pockets, right? when we get home and and I think we can cultivate a culture of honor with our kids by advising and bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. That's what the scripture says, right? That that can even mean, you know, sharing your failures, telling telling them where you did it wrong. And then the last thing I I would say, be encouraging. I would challenge you parents, don't underestimate, even if you have adult children, they need to hear you say that you believe in them. They need that. They need to hear the voice of their parents speaking into their life. Jeff Johnson, I follow him on Instagram. He's one of the worship leaders from the Passion Movement. Um, Put it out on Instagram the other day. He said, be the person you needed when you were younger. And uh, he posted a picture of of himself. He's a guitar player um, on the stage and his young son kind of walking up on the stage, which is probably inappropriate in the moment. But I remember reading that and I was like, you know, be the person you need when you were younger. A math tutor? I, I, I don't want to be that, you know? <laughs> um, but then, you know, you think about it, realizing what he means, all of us, when we were younger, we wanted someone to believe in us and to tell us the good that they saw in us. And so be that. Be that for the people in your family. Be that for your brothers and sisters and your siblings. Be the voice that breathes life into them and you'll create a culture of honor in your family. And then the last thing um, that I would do as we close, I would say, don't put it off. Don't put it off. Um, Don't wait. Tell them, those in your family, the good that they have put into your life. Tell them the things that you see in them that are beautiful. Speak from your heart about you wish was true for them, even if it's not. Even if you know that they're going to reject it. Or you say, well, I know that they're not going to listen to me. Say it anyway. Because you'll want to know, I did my role as a son or a daughter, and I did my role as a follower of Jesus to honor them and to tell them about a father God who sent his son to redeem even them, right? So fill your role for the glory of God and the good of your family. And I promise you, when you come to the end of your days, you'll be glad that you took 
that role seriously. And you'll be thankful that your Father in heaven gave you the resources to bless your family. He has. He has. So God, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the gift um, that we have being sons and daughters in your family, God. You've adopted us in and you've showed it, showed us what it's meant to have a, a good father, a perfect father who loves every one of his children. God, I, I pray, as hard as it may be for some of us, and as easy as it may be for some of us, Lord, that you would help us to not waste the opportunities that we have with our family. God, the, the families that you've built, that you're sovereign over, that you've given us a role to be a steward over, whatever that role looks like for each one of us, God, you've given them to us. When I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that mother, that father, that sister, that brother, that aunt, that uncle, that grandma, that grandma, the way that you see them. Not the way that, you know, our vision has been colored by hurt, by pain. Lord, I'd help, I pray that you would help us to be Joseph that would be in a place that you as his father blessed him, Lord, and that you would use the resources that you've given him to bless his family and to bring them out of captivity, Lord, and to show them the love of a true and perfect father. God, give us those opportunities. God, we pray this morning. We know that you can do the impossible. You can, if, if we just ask and pray, Lord, we'll, we'll do what what's feasible on our part and you Lord will do the natural you do the supernatural so even if it seems like this relationship that we're thinking about right now the Holy Spirit is probably having us think about seems like it's impossible Lord you do the impossible you open up the doors you give us the influence you give us that open door and Lord just do what only you can do God we pray for those opportunities today if you're here this morning, I don't want to leave without the opportunity of, of giving you the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And if you haven't done that, or maybe you need to resurrender your life this morning, I want to give you that opportunity. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, um, this is a personal decision. Um, and there's nothing magical about this moment. It's just saying, I want to follow you, Jesus, and I want to walk in all that you have for me. So I'm going to pray a prayer. And uh, we're going to have everybody repeat it, not to embarrass anybody. But if that's you with nobody looking around, um, just raise your hand. I just, just want to see your hand this morning and agree with you. Is there anybody in this place? I want to resurrender my life to Jesus. You see that? Or I want to give my heart to Jesus for the first time. Thank you, Lord. Okay, let's pray this together. Father God, I want to give you my life. Thank you for coming to earth for me and giving your all, for surrendering your life for me, for my family. I want to give my life to you. So would you lead me? Would you take me where you want me? My life is yours. I surrender it to you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for being my rescue. In your name we pray, amen.